In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I'm Brian Rose. I also host London Real. It's a similar show, same studio. We get some crazy people in the room like Howard Marks, George Galloway, Tim Ferriss, or uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is our guy this week, the astrophysicist. With the rock star astrophysicist. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was uh, voted the the sexiest astrophysicist alive. Really? Which I told him is kind of a backhanded compliment. Tough competition. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Him and Stephen Hawking. He is America's most famous, um, like, you know, uh, scientific guy, scientist. Yeah, very so, cool. Anyways, that's London Real. Check that out if you want. Um, we're here today to talk about tech. My co-host is uh, Colin Pyle, entrepreneur. Uh, you're around the world doing coffee deals. You're, uh, Working it. Yeah, well, you're in Germany. You're in Italy. You're, you're trying to deliver these biodegradable pods. What's going on? Yeah, so been really sort of cleaning up a lot of mess, actually, the last month or so. So as a startup company, really tough to nail down your supply chain. Right. Uh, so we fell on our face a little bit, and we're getting back up and and re, re, redeveloping it. So things are looking very positive, and I hope to have a first batch of 100,000 pods in about 10 days. So uh, so we, we got back on our feet quick, but these things happen. Awesome. So, That's why yeah. they're going to pay you the big bucks one there we day go. For, for dealing with all these issues. So yeah. um, excellent. Before I get to our guest, I just wanted to give a shout out to um, TaskRabbit. They're one of our sponsors for the show. They're an online marketplace where you can outsource small jobs to people in your community. They do a bunch of back-end stuff for, for Silicon Reel, actually yeah. doing like the clips and things like that. But they'll also find you a housekeeper, plumber, you name it. So uh, we love their show. They, we had Lauren Sherman on, their head of community, about a month ago. She really killed it. And uh, they're here in London, taskrabbit.co.uk. You get 25 pounds free by using the code real 25 so yeah check them out and again yeah. i'll always say i'm just shocked at, at actually the level uh, of ability of a lot of these pe- the taskers that, uh, that what they can do like well just, i love them because they sent free cupcakes to our office to my co-founder the other day there so you like go. you know you, free uh, cupcakes. you can't it takes, yeah. yeah have you gotten yeah. free cupcakes it was no. on valentine's day alice is a lot harder than any of us all so right, all right. yeah so, what's yeah. up lauren we're going to talk to her about that but no <laughs> yeah. it is a great service and uh, it's it's really a temporary workforce that you can just outsource yeah. like that and yeah, uh great. you know they bring a lot of that really cool vibe they kind of have that startup silicon valley you know san francisco feel to it big about community so thanks so much to them yep all right, let's get on with this. We have Mr. Matt Clifford, who is the chief executive and co-founder of Entrepreneur First, uh, which identifies and invests in Europe's top technical students uh, by supporting them to build startups that solve real problems using technology when they graduate. Correct. You start at the very early stage, taking individuals pre-team and pre-idea. This is a concept we haven't talked about. No. Um, your uh, first round of, of uh, 33 people, I think you built 11 companies. Uh, one year later, and you have a collective uh, market valuation of about $50 million. Uh, it's impressive stuff. Matt, welcome to Silicon Real. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, yeah. this is uh, it's such a unique story, and I'm getting really excited preparing for this because, you know, we've had the incubators in. We've had the Wayras and, and the, the seed camps and the number one seeds. We talked all about this stuff, but we haven't had anybody that goes right to the crib 
sure. take, takes them out, yeah. uh, you know, from like right when they're graduating, which is a crazy, interesting idea. Still so, wet behind the ears. Yeah. And I was wondering if you start looking, you know, earlier than, uh, than college. We're, we're looking forward to our first compared to the slides. No, no, no. We go earlier than EF, earlier uh, than EF. It's like, yeah, oh, right. wow. Yeah. yeah maybe Promising like fetuses. In, in yeah, vitro. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic idea what you're doing. I think it's hard for people to get their head around it right away. I was wondering if you could walk us through kind of the basics or some of the questions you get asked normally when people are like, what the hell is yeah, entrepreneur yeah, yeah. first? Um, yeah, so I, I guess kind of if you step right back and you say, you know, you imagine yourself as a, a computer scientist or an engineer, someone who really loves tech and, you know, you may be 21 years old, you, you know, you're a great university or, you know, maybe you don't study those subjects but you're self-taught hacker and you just love building stuff you get to that kind of point where your parents are starting to say right so what's next when are you going to start you know kind of actually getting a job and you look at your options and um the way you know kind of i think it has been in the uk over a long period of time really is that you know the banks loom very large in that you know the banks are very aggressive recruiters on university campuses so obviously some big corporates professional services is huge but actually like if you want to build stuff like really build products that solve real problems you know that kind of use cutting edge tech what do you do and that's kind of the question that ef wants to be the answer to um so if you imagine this guy or girl the sadly maybe we'll talk about this it's mainly mainly guys right now you know, kind of looking at their options. One option is to try and start their own thing. But if they're going to start their own thing, they need a team. And, you know, I think that's pretty much universally accepted. No one's going to invest in people that don't have teams. Um, but what if you, you know, in your final year at uni, you're about to graduate and you don't have that team um, already? Like, no one's going to fund you to find a team. Um, and so kind of that's not an option for you, actually, if you haven't already got that person. Uh, or you do have that person, but, you know, you, you recognize that you don't have the big idea that could really be worth your time. Um, so what do you do? Again, you kind of don't have that option, so you pretty much have to go join a big company. Because you would need an idea to get into a wearer or right, something. Right, exactly, okay. yeah, yeah. And, you know, like Seacamp and wearer and, you know, doing, doing great stuff, but they're not going to take the kind of people I'm talking about. Um, you know, that's not their model. So what EF wants to say is if you are actually you know, truly brilliant, truly exceptional, you want to build stuff, but you maybe don't know what yet or with whom, EF is your answer. Um, you can kind of think of it as the place where we think the top tech talent in the country comes to hang out to build stuff when they graduate and so do you recruit them yourself then yeah absolutely so, so it's a huge part of what we do is the recruitment and so for every position how many guys did you know do you do you touch um i mean like tons to be honest um, right. we when we start this in 2011 we had no money um frankly we'd never done it before um we had no idea whether it was possible to build teams um we had no brand no track record and even then we had like 450 applicants in our first year we we're like whoa um wow. this is crazy this is like really tapping into something on campus that people are feeling this year i think we had like 700 um and you know you know so we're, we're talking like serious numbers of applicants mm-hmm. per place um, where, where did you get this idea from um, I mean, you were at McKinsey before and yeah. some other things, but like, uh, where does this come to you in your head that we're going to start yeah. a, a, a stage earlier than everyone else? It's one of those things that in a way was kind of like overdetermined. There were so many things that in retrospect kind of pushed us here. So I, I guess one is like tech is what I've always cared about. And yet when I like was reviewing what I was going to do when I left university, when I left grad school, I was like... I was like, well, you have to go get a serious job, right? Because otherwise no one's going to take you seriously. So I'm going to go somewhere very serious and I'm going to go to McKinsey. And um, that kind of, in retrospect, seems strange. And then when I was at McKinsey, I think in my class of analysts, like nine of us are now in tech. 
which kind of seems strange, right? Why why are these people, and like, you know, some of them wildly successful, like the founders of GoCardless were at McKinsey with, with us, and, you know, they're doing exceptionally well right now. You know, like, why are these people going to McKinsey first? Is it because, maybe it would be totally legit if it was that afterwards they're like, yeah, everything I learned at McKinsey, I applied to my startup. But honestly, you go talk to us, and they're like, <laughs> kind of had to spend the first year unlearning most of what I learned at McKinsey. So it's not that McKinsey is the training ground for tech people. It's the people feel they have to do this. So like, that was the other kind of thing just going away in Alice and my head. So it's like, well, if McKinsey isn't what these people should do before they start their company, what should that be? And McKinsey um, has the cash and the glamour. Is that why people go there? Yeah. And like, you know, frankly, I mean, uh, full disclosure, I actually had a great time there. <laughs> it, was, right. it was good in, lo- in, in lots of ways. And, you know, the best reason to go there is if you have no idea what you want to do. Is it like the show House of Lies? I've not seen that, so I wouldn't wouldn't like to comment. Don Don Cheadle. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, by and large, it's, you know, it's a lot of smart people doing interesting work, you know, real problems, but, you know, and I think, you know, they still sponsor us, Um, but, uh, you know, they would say, you know, it's not execution, by and large, it's not implementation, Um, and it's certainly not, you know, kind of building stuff from the ground up. It's advisory and it's pure. Yeah, and for big companies, right? Yeah. Um, But what I think you really learn from sort of that that type of role is just an incredible work ethic. Yeah, yeah, well, that's certainly true. And and like hitting deadlines and and just like dealing with intense stress of getting projects done in time and 100-hour weeks. And I think those are the lessons that that really help you out when you... And that's a really good point, actually, is one of the things we, you know, one of the things we did want to do when stepping back and creating EF was like, well, what, what are the bits that actually you know, McKinsey or wherever does prepare you for. And, you know, a lot of the program design is to try and get people into the mindset of deadlines right. and, of, and of, you know, kind of really hard work, I suppose. Um, so, you know, there were a few things that kind of bubble in a way makes think, oh, there's a room for this. And then, you know, I guess we kind of got lucky in that it was just timing that this was August 2011. It was about the time that all the kind of tech city stuff was really bubbling up and, you know, kind of actually probably the one time that startups have really got inside McKinsey was McKinsey were quite involved in that piece of, you know, kind of work for the government, I guess. And, and so it just was suddenly kind of staring us in the face that there was this opportunity. It was around the time that the guys at the Silicon Mill Roundabout were starting to kind of really push into you know, getting grads to think about applying for jobs in startups. And lots of things came together, really. Um, it felt like, you know, there was demand on campus. There was kind of like a supply of mentors and, you know, capital. And it was uh, worth taking a shot. Okay, let's get into the specifics of what you do. You, you guys have a 12-month program where, where uh, the, the typical incubator is three to Twelve nine, weeks. Twelve uh, weeks. Yeah. Uh, although, where is longer? Isn't that what Dash yeah, was saying? Yeah, where is longer, actually. Yeah, where I thought longer. it was three months, but Dash was saying it was yeah, like no. nine months or something. Uh, is that yeah. a long six? Maybe yeah, I, think six. I think it's more... I thought it was six, but I don't know. Three to six, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Your, your program's 12 months. You take them straight out of yeah. their graduate school. They can only be out of school for like three or four years. Up to three years, Up yeah. to three years. They can't have an MBA. Yeah. Is that controversial? Uh, no, no. Well, I mean, like, it's um. That's, Is it the MBA specifically or master's degrees? No, no. It's an MBA, um, and I'm sure it means we miss some great people. But um, I think if you so when we went round and like did our kind of customer development or whatever you want to call it, like talking to people when we started EF. One thing people say was, oh, this has been done before and it always fails. And it always fails because you try and, universities do it. They get the business school together, the engineering school, and they get them to try and come together. And it always fails because the power dynamic's just wrong. Like the MBAs want a code monkey. And, you know, they like find a code monkey and then the engineer's like, I don't, I don't want to be your code monkey. Um, right, right. So I like actually, you know, a big important part of what EF is, is, you know, if you come around the office I hope feels like a kind of hacker culture. And I think that's what the guys who come in 
feel like you know they they want to be around builders like them. Uh, and I'm not saying MBAs can't be builders. I'm not even saying they're not builders, but it's just a decision we've made in order to keep a really kind of flat power dynamic. You know, if I team up with you, there's like no expectation of who's the boss. It's just like we're going to build stuff together. Okay, uh, that's the only reason for that. And you've had two years graduate. Just about to graduate the second. And what's the size of your second year? Uh, exactly the same as the first. Year. Thirty-three. Yeah, thirty-ish. Uh, yeah, thirty-ish. Yeah, yeah. uh, and then we just selected the third year, and that's bigger. That's nearly double. It's in the 50s. And do you, do you pay these kids? Uh, so the way it works is when we say 12 months, it's absolutely true, but half of that's part-time and half of it's full-time. So we actually count from the day we make your offer as the day to start of the program. And the reason is that, as you can imagine, if you're taking individuals, probably the most important thing you do is get those people to know each other till they're comfortable forming teams. So between now, we made the offers about a week ago, between now and September, um, the whole focus is on building a genuine community of people such that within that group of 30 or this year, like 55, you, you kind of feel there's multiple people that you could realistically start a business with. So in practice, that means we get them together sometimes on a purely social basis, sometimes like hackathon style to actually build stuff together, uh, sometimes just to kind of get some like external stimulus in terms of ideas, like people coming to talk about trends or big problems that need solving, big challenges. Um, and this, we do this again and again and again uh, in increasing intensity over the summer. And we call this the part-time program. By the end of the part-time program, which finishes the end of August, you commit to a team and an initial idea. Um, we're totally transparent. Those teams and ideas at that stage are very unlikely to be the ones that you graduate with um, at the end, of, uh, the end of February. But um, nevertheless, they're an important starting point. They're an important point for iteration. Full-time program is full-time from September uh, for six months. And, and at that point, it, it's actually about trying to turn that team and that idea into a company. Um, what's great about EF is because you've done that kind of six months of kind of light touch getting to know each other, when the teams break down, because it turns out you and I can't stand each other or the idea turns out to be terrible, there's actually a lot of liquidity in people. So to- it feels very natural. It doesn't feel like failure to say, you know what, um, we're not going to work out. Right. So let's start something together. And I'd say if you look at our results in terms of Fundraising and valuation, there's zero correlation between valuation and whether it was the first team they settled in or not. Um, so in terms of funding, we don't provide any funding at all for that part-time bit, okay. uh, basically on the, on the reasoning that the guys would be alive anyway, um, yeah. and, you know, like, just like a job. Um, doesn't pay until you start in September. And they have office, shared office space with you? Yeah, yeah. So we, we make our office available for the full time. Okay. Um, and we, we partner with Workspace Group who have kind of these... Um, kind of club workspaces all over London. Our guys get access to those and it's been fantastically, well, it's been great. Um, and then our funding model, um, going through a big change this year, essentially we're, we're funding everyone for the first three months um, on a kind of stipend basis. Uh, currently working out exactly the details, but you know, more or less paying a kind of minimum wage style uh, covering of living costs for the first three months. And then that funds the the liquid stage, if you like, the stage at which there's high team instability, high idea instability. We find that three months in, by 1st of December, actually there's high degree of stability. You kind of know, if you do three months together, you know whether you want to work together. And you're also starting to get a sense from the market whether anyone wants what you're building. So at that point, we turn into much more of a conventional kind of investment approach, you know, much like, say, Seacamp or Wire or whatever, you know, we put in a fixed amount for a fixed percentage of the company. Okay. And you guys are obviously expanding fast. Did you expect to have a class in the 50s this year? Um, no. Um, I think, it. to be totally honest, this was driven by the quality that we saw in this applicant pool. 
we didn't feel like we didn't feel we could turn down any of these 55 people. Wow. Uh, and, and where are they? Where's the applicant pool primarily coming from? Um, so we're now we're about 60% of people are applying in their final year at university, and about 40% kind of with one to three years uh, out. This year we had applicants from 105 different universities uh, across Europe, which was which was great. Although in practice we probably 80% of the people come from about 10 in the UK, 10 universities in the UK, hmm. uh, and that's probably a broad reflection of where we spend our time. So um, mostly UK. Mostly UK. Because it's English, first language, it just happens. Yeah, more. and where we've where we've dedicated time. I mean, our recruiting is, I would say, by far our kind of biggest asset. I think we've spent the last nearly three years really building great on-campus networks of, of people who want to build stuff. And, you know, I hope we're starting to become, like, part of the option set for, for anyone who considers themselves a, a builder. So... A lot of it is driven by where the cohort were from, Ashley, because they tell their friends, and I think everyone's having a great experience, so they you know, say, you should apply to do this. Also, it's just, where do we go do workshops? Where do we go spend time? Um, you know, so it, it varies a bit. We sometimes suddenly get loads of applicants from a uni that we've not spent any time in, which is great, but by and large, it reflects... Um, it reflects what where we're spending our time. And what what is the the grand scheme for you guys? Do you want to scale the hell out of this? Do you want to have a group of five hundred people that are going to be your graduating class in, in a few years' time? Well, I, I think the way of thinking about it is like I really believe the world is changing in terms of how this kind of type of person thinks about their career and what that means. And um, you know, I, I think it's something that Paul Graham at Y Combinator said that you know it used to be about what's the most prestigious company you can work for, and now it's like what the biggest company you can make, what's the biggest company you can make, and we you know we see that on campus. These are what people want, and we believe at EF we can be the people that, that actually enable that uh, very you know in a very real sense for a whole swathe of, of engineers, hackers, whatever you want to call um, these people around the world. And um, yeah, I, I can see this certainly operating in the hundreds of people. Um, you know, and actually what we're starting to see as well is, you know, one thing that's changed throughout the cohorts is the type of things they're building. It's partly a reflection of um, just how quickly technology is advancing, partly a reflection of the kind of people who are applying. But it's becoming more and more hardcore in terms of the, the, the actual technology. You know, it's not, it's not kind of Rails apps and, you know, kind of um, Flappy Bird clones. It's, you know, serious um, hardcore things in machine learning. Yeah. And so, you know, I... I don't think it's crazy to say a model like this could, you know, be like the Bell Labs of the 21st century, right? If you can actually get all the smartest people who want to build stuff to come together for six months when they graduate to give it a go, I think that's some pretty exciting stuff that come out. This is a fascinating continuation because we had yeah. we had someone it's on great, here that, that, that 10 years ago said, you know, in order to raise enough money to make a real good run in the tech space, you needed $20 million. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and these yeah. days, you know, most people agree you just need a few hundred to get that product to market. And now Matt is talking about like a whole new paradigm change where maybe you just go get the talent. Yeah. And then since, you know, it's it's possible for them to maybe get an MVP you know, within you three, yeah. four, five months, then maybe just go straight from there. But it's crazy. We we make investments now. Um, this What's new, your average kind of investment? We, it's all fixed. Um, okay. So it's a new model this year with the stipend style arrangement that I described. But yeah. the last program we did, we just put in kind of when they were stable, we put in uh, 17.5K for 8%. It's just totally fixed. We cannot get them to spend that money. Right. Like, you know, it's like, it sounds like a tiny amount of money, right? None of them spend it. <laughs> like, right. it's, it's not like... Can they spend it on rent or that is actually for oh, no, the, company No, costs? no, they, well, they can, pay, they can pay themselves a salary, for example, but right. like, okay. they, they, they do not, they're just so lean. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think what we're seeing, 
I mean, one of one of the guys who comes in and talks to the the, um, the founders is Ed Ray, who's one of the founders of Betfair. He tells this great story. Um, you know, when they set up Betfair, they had to raise a million dollars before they even you know kind of opened up to buy the servers. Like our guys would never pay anything for servers, never mind buying them. And you know, not only that, but they just don't want to spend money on anything. And it just means that the real ba- what are the barriers if you are that kind of incredibly smart computer scientist? Well. There's, I guess, can you afford to live? Well, we pay a stipend. There's a, like, does it mean that I'm going to cripple my career? Well, no, that's crazy. Like, we have a 100% employment rate, um, even among those who, who don't succeed in their company. You know, maybe, the, you know, what are the other barriers? I mean, there's, why wouldn't you give this a go is where we want to get to. And um, no, I, think, I think we're getting there. And I think, you know, the faster we scale, the, the more, you know, we'll get that mind share that means that people do come and give it a try. It, what's holding you back from scaling, I guess, is cash. Uh, no, uh, actually, no, it's, uh, it's mainly like process and learning. Okay. Um, like it's the last thing I would want to pretend is that it's a, a clean and straightforward process. I can right. imagine our cohort listening to this and thinking, man, that, man, that makes it sound easy. Um, yeah. it's messy. Right. It's really, really yeah. messy. They come out this uh, end and great companies yeah, come out this Exactly. Sound. It's gorgeous. You're dealing with people. It's people. You, personalities. Yeah. And like, I, you know, we, we're, I hope we're really transparent about this. Like it is, um, it is not for everyone. Like there are super highs and super lows and people do fall out with their co-founders and it's really messy. And right now I would say a lot of my time goes on, um, not the, not the kind of really bad bits, but the kind of like just human side of it. Like, um, the biggest, the biggest challenge in scaling is, is really finding the right people and the right processes to make those messy bits just clean enough that we can keep, um, keep growing. So, you know, for example, I think, Right now, we have a huge pool of mentors who come in and help, and, and that's great. Um, uh, and you know, we, I don't know where we'd be without them, but what we see time and time again is what, what companies at this stage, which is the earliest, earliest, earliest stage, need is continuity. And right now, Alice and I are the only people that provide the continuity to them. So um, launching uh, from the September program, we're going to have some part-time partners who come in on a more regular basis and and provide that continuity. And if we can make that work, then I think that takes away one of the massive barriers to scale. Um, I think team building exercises and you know falling falling backwards trust. And, uh-huh. and to catch you or offsites. Uh, not quite. Um, okay. We our team <laughs> too, building too English is, for that. Too um, <laughs> no, I mean <laughs> uh, we encourage them to spend a lot of <laughs> a lot of time together. And we, we monitor what they do when they do that. Um, but the main thing we do is make them build things together. Um, I mean, I, I really. As I said, this isn't for everyone. It really is for builders. It's for people who want to like create products with exciting technology. And we find by far the best way for them to build bonds and build trust is spend a weekend not doing very much sleeping and just building. And uh, you'll you'll get to know people pretty quickly that way. And so we make them do it again and again and again. Really, I mean, the summer if you join EF, you're only one day a week with us. But that one day a week, you'll you'll be creating real products with with the people that. Select. Work environment must be really important to keep that vibe yeah. just right between feeling good and open and yeah. work ethic, I'm guessing. It's really tricky. It's something we, again, kind of changing a bit in that at first we said, you know, like you have to work in the EF offices. You know, it's really important to create the community, uh, which is true, but actually it makes it pretty noisy pretty quickly and pretty... Um, it's, it's not, a, not clear to me anymore that that's the most productive way of doing it. So we're very fortunate, again, in our kind of workspace sponsor that um, we have these six sites across London that the guys can use. So now what we say is you have to be in on Mondays for check-in with me or Alice, and you have to be in on Fridays to do our kind of end-of-week demos, which is how we kind of build the sense of collaborative but competitive 
oh man, Colin's got pretty far this week. Right. I need to get pretty far this week. And the rest of the time they can work wherever they want. I like that structure. That sounds good. All right. Well, this is uh, Silicon Real, so it's time to get real. You know, you've got a couple grumpy old men in the house right. who uh, we both used to work, you know, in a kind of a, a Wall Street area. Uh, you in Toronto. I was in New York City and London. And we've had this conversation time and time again. You know, uh, I'm kind of new to this space. And we see a lot of guys that are coming straight out of college and they want to be an entrepreneur. They're going to start this and they're going to start that. But they've never had a job for a while. You know, you worked at McKinsey. Um, we both worked in banking. And we know there's a few things you get from doing that like colin says you got to show up on time you have to do what your boss says even if you don't like it you have to do all these things and and we we think that it's an asset to have that going into any type of venture to know how to work and we don't even know if you can get that without so what do you say to people that say you can't take these guys straight from the from the college campus and, and put them right into a startup uh, I'd say go talk to the investors who do their seed and A rounds and tell them that. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, no. Um, and you've been in that uh, world. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I think, I think there's, um, uh, you know, there's, there's an element of, of that. And I think we would say that most of it for us is filtered out in the selection process. You know, like we're not, you know, you could be a complete genius um, and build anything. But if you, you know, if during selection it becomes very clear that you can't, you know, turn yeah. up. Uh, you know, but, but I mean, that's an interview. How do you determine that's an interview? Well, you know, we, we, we do a lot of things during our selection process other than interviews, including we actually hold a selection hackathon where they have to turn up on time, work in a team. We watch them work in a team. We watch them interact with people. Um, the other thing is I, I actually think that you can replicate a lot of the kind of corporate, the benefits of a corporate environment with a sufficiently structured program. Like, you know, if you have like weekly, you know, weekly demos where you're like, you know what, you're going to have to show not just everyone you're with, uh, everyone you've been selected with, but some external guest, which is what we do every week, kind of where you're up to. Like, you just look stupid if you've done nothing. And you either sink or swim in that environment. And, you know, our model is very much built on the fact that we're going to, we're not going to, they're not all going to be Mark Zuckerberg, right? You know, we're going to lose some. And that's, and that's fine. And if, if actually going through the process is what it takes for us to work out who is up for this and who's not, that's fine. And, you know, the model's robust to that. That's not how we, you know, kind of make our money. Um, that said, you would be amazed at, how the best of them, the ones that are kind of building the, you know, the companies that are now valued at millions, you know, they, they don't have this problem. Like I, they are, you can't tell that they're 22. You know, they, you, you feel they've kind of had 10 years in banking. Um, you can't tell that they're, you know, they've never worked in an office environment before. They've just got that inherent maturity. And one of the things we actually explicitly look for in interviewers, do they feel older than they are? And um, one of my favorite ever moments last year was we have this, um, a great company, Kivo, uh, they kind of do um, Git, uh, as in version control, uh, for, for non-developers. So um, if you're using Microsoft Office, you can do ver- nicely version control versions of, of, of what you're doing. And um, their key customer group, um, at least when they were starting out, was management consultants. And um, I remember talking to an angel investor who was like looking at their uh, seed round and he was like, yeah, but you've kind of cheated with, with Kivo because you know, they've all worked in consulting before. I was like, no, they haven't. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy was at McKinsey. It's like, no, he wasn't. And like, I think that actually the best people, and we're in a fortunate position to be really picky, they're kind of ageless. Like, they just pick this up. If you, if you were really, really good at customer development, if you go out and talk to uh, your customers again and again and again, uh, you become like them. And actually, if you talk to Kivo, like, you, can, you can totally believe that they would be, have been management consultants. Actually, they both kind of both graduated straight out of uni, you know, kind of summer 2012. Um, Fair so, enough. Okay, yeah. that's a pretty good answer. You got anything yeah. you want to say? No, I like it. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think it's phenomenal. I think I love the twist on kind of the incubator approach. I think there's so many accelerators and incubators, and I think we're not even halfway through. It's a favorite topic. Colin, Colin and I have an acronym. It's called NAI, not another incubator. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a serious. I mean, I think if, you, if you're starting an incubator now, I think you've got to like look long and hard and say, there's only one question that matters in the economics of incubators, which is why would anyone come here instead of Y Combinator? I think that's the only question that matters because, you know, venture is, you know, venture returns are on a power, you know, power law, you know, the, you don't kind of get 10% of the returns from the best 10%, you get 99% of the returns from the best 1%. Right. So if you're going to not pick Dropbox, like you, you lose all your economics. Um, and, you know, like if one of the reasons that we don't want to take team, you know, we get a lot of people apply who are in teams with ideas. The question we ask is like, why do you want to come here? If you could get into Y Combinator, you should go to Y Combinator. If you can't get into Y Combinator, we don't want you. Um, and that's like mean, but like actually, it's a huge issue for, for anyone starting a new accelerator is you make money from a tiny, tiny proportion of massive outlier winners. And if yeah, I'm not saying that you know, YC can pick perfectly and you know, they'll always get the right ones, but it's a pretty big bet that you're basically taking the people that other people didn't want, but you still think they're going to provide the outside winners. And I think it's it's dangerous because a lot of them it's a lot of them now are becoming sector specific. So you know, education, for example, or stuff like that. And I think again, you're picking the idea and you're picking the sector. When I think what you guys are doing is incredible because I, I really truly believe that it is in the people and it is in the team. And and you take any good team and mm-hmm. they'll kind of make whatever they choose yeah. to be successful. Yeah. And so I think fostering that in a, in an environment with mentors and is great. And I think your success will probably be not that 1%, but you might have a wider right. wider range. But you may not have the, the knockout, but but I think on average your success will probably be greater. I mean, I think you know what, what we have told our investors and what we truly believe is you know, we, we believe we can build Y Combinator quality teams before these people are eligible to go to Y Combinator. And uh, two of our teams did go to Y Combinator. And, you know, we don't want to be a finishing school. That's not a long run aim. But I think it's, for us, it's like testament to the quality of the people that you can get in, um, which I do think is a real challenge if you're a you know, generic accelerator that doesn't have a differentiator. And so, I'm sure there are lots of accelerators that do have differentiators. But, yeah. So why, aren't, why, why haven't, hasn't someone tried to copy you guys or, or have they? Um, well, I don't think many people know about us yet. I think right. it's super early for us. Um, Too late. <laughs> exactly. uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. But, um, well, I think it does sound crazy. I mean, I, I remember whenever our startups have bad meetings, either with investors or mentors, where they come and they say, like, man, those guys hated us. They were just like, why are you even doing this? Alice and I always just say, every meeting we ever had when we started EF, they were like, cool, that's really nice, well done, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> like, people thought it was totally crazy. And... Um, I guess in some ways it is, you know, like if you listen to the rhetoric around teams that investors, particularly kind of seed investors put out, it's hard to imagine that you could ever replicate the kind of team that people want to invest in through this process. I think just empirically, you seem to be able to, and, you know, we, we think the teams that have come out of the last couple of programs are, are incredible. Um, but, I, you know, I think, you know, we're totally realistic about this, that, you know, if we continue to produce great results then people will try and do it and and that's fine um it, does anything like this exist in the u.s not seems not, like the u.s they'd we, be pulling them out of high school not, not that we know <laughs> next question um i mean there are there are definitely there are definitely programs that have a, a view of kind of founder first uh, so the founder institute for example although okay. it's certainly not a 
quite the same intensity of program. I mean, I, I kind of see our competitive advantage is that, as I said, it's incredibly messy and the devil mm. is in the detail and the mess, the mess is, it's how is it messy is the question. And sure. I think that's what we've learned. Interviewing 700 applicants yeah, alone yeah. is a bit of an oh, operational. Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah. Ultimately, it's a human services issue. I mean, yeah. like, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're dealing with so many personalities and individuals yeah. and, you know, that's, that is your capital and yeah. then how you interact with them and yeah. you don't and, want to. And our recruitment networks. I, um, I mean, we, we just hired this uh, amazing woman, Zoe, to kind of um, work full time on talent just because it was becoming such a huge part of, of, of Alice and my roles and she, she was formerly at Mind Candy and Apple and she just gets what what like hackers want and um, we've got some exciting stuff coming out um, do you pull people out of like freshman year a la Bill Gates a la Zuckerberg do people drop out of school uh, to be with you people drop out but we don't pull them out so if we get an applicant and they tell us hey I'm in my second year we don't say I'm sorry you can't come but equally we do not target those people Okay, so I mean, like Colin says, do you, I mean, are you tempted to innovate more and go to the high school or get in earlier, or, or at least maybe so they know about you their freshman year? Um, so yeah, so we're we're going to launch in September something called Founder School, which is going to be our on-campus kind of uh, activity. And rather than doing a kind of autumn recruitment push, we want to be in university year-round, uh, and we want to be in, we want to be a brand that you know about from day one. And um, the way we do that is just by being really authentic. It's not going to be a recruiting brand. It's going to be a building brand. Like we're going to help people build the stuff that they want to build. You know, if you go look at a computer science curriculum in the UK, it's not about building. By and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, it's very theoretical. So like, we want to be the place on campus, even in your first year, that you come and meet other builders and come and build stuff. Um, and I think you know we, we've learned a lot about how to pull that off in the last three years. And, and I think you know once once we've rolled that out, I think that's going to make it. Uh, you know, even stronger as, a, as an option for people leaving, but also going to mean that we encounter these people earlier, which is great. You know, there's an article in the New York Times last week, and it was like how Google hires, you know, and yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. come out saying they don't use GPAs anymore and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah, it was just all the different ways of interacting with a team and how they, you know, like having the ego, but admitting you're wrong and like all yeah, of these yeah, different yeah. ways and metrics, you know, I think yeah. they look at, you probably read that. Is yeah, that yeah, yeah. Were they copying your ideas? <laughs> well, Google are brilliant at, at, at this, like really, truly brilliant at recruitment. Um, we firmly believe, and in fact, you know, we, we've, we've got a couple of people that show it that there are. There are certain kind of personality types for whom our value proposition makes more sense, at least at that kind of graduate stage. But yeah, I mean, Google are definitely the, the most uh, uh, obvious competitor from a recruitment point of view. Yeah. All right. Talk to us about women. Where are they? You, know, you, said, you said most of your program is men. Yeah. You know, uh, we have women guests here. Okay? Yeah. But, you know, this is a fairly male-dominated industry right now. Is that going to change? Why is that? Um, well, we, we hope it will change. Um, you know, we... I was fortunate in that like the smartest, most driven, determined person I knew when I wanted to set up EF was a woman. And so, um, it, uh, you know, kind of having Alice, I couldn't have done this without Alice. And, you know, it, I hope, is a great role model for women looking at our organization is that as they graduate, it's like, well, actually, you know, Alice has totally built this, this great organization. I hope that's what they think. Um, it's a huge issue for us. It broadly reflects the fact that we're very technical in focus. Um, and if you look at computer science departments, engineering departments they are roughly the same ratio as us um maybe a little bit better 80 percent male 80 plus percent male um so uh, out of 100 applicants that you get how what's the percentage of male mm, to female so yeah it's not great we we probably get about 20 ish percent female applicants 
by final round that's probably down to about 15 percent and in the cohort it's probably about 10 percent and that um, needs to change i think it needs to change for i mean like the, the people we run a program called Code First Girls. Um, it's, um, it's a program to encourage young women to learn to code. We provide on-campus free ed- uh, coding education for like women. Like college level? Or college level, okay. yeah, college level. And um, we, we do it because, um, one, I think it's the right thing to do, but actually, more importantly, we're a talent-based program. We don't take ideas. We don't take teams. So if we're going to say, ah, oh, 50% of the population just isn't wired for this, like, we're crazy, right? We're going to miss out on huge opportunity. So for us, it's really, really important just commercially that we find the brilliant women. And for whatever reason right now, uh, partly because of what the skills they've learned during university and partly because of um, mentality and stereotypes around this industry, they, they're not applying. And when they are applying, they're unfortunately not selling themselves as well as their male counterparts. And they actually, in many cases, haven't developed the same skill sets. It's something that Facebook, uh, you know, COO said yeah. in her book. She mm. talked about how yet yeah, women don't sell themselves as yeah. much or ask, you know, traditionally as much as men do. Sure. Which yeah. I guess in an entrepreneurial business. They, yeah, I was reading. I don't know if it was that book, but another said, you know, a lot of the time women anticipate that their superior will be fair when, <laughs> when they when they won't, whereas men kind of force that that fairness. Yeah. So we'll ask and be like, you know what, my buddy over here at this company is getting paid this and I should be getting paid that rather yeah. than being like, oh, well, if my friend's getting paid that, yeah. then then I'm sure. What, was, uh, name? Happen, what right? was the Facebook girl that wrote that book? Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah, she was saying how she didn't even counter offer Zuckerberg when he first gave her the offer and her husband was like, are you fucking crazy? Like, you're going to be doing the negotiations for most of Facebook and you're not <laughs> counter-offering your equity piece? And she's right. like, oh yeah. And so she did and then they met in the middle. But you know, it's just for a woman at a high level, it's just, yeah, maybe it's, it's just a different mentality, also, which means that they can be great on teams for bringing yeah, completely yeah. different things yeah. to the table too. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's also, a, yeah, there's lots of studies that show that um, men and women are objectively the same level of expertise, even self, self-assess at like <laughs> whole standard deviations different of like of ability. And that's huge as yeah, a problem. Confident. For us though, I, I really think it's actually a kind of, not not to pass the buck, but like it really is. We're not going to become less technically oriented. In fact, if anything, we'll become more so. And so, it really is going to come down to skill sets and making sure that women don't say, "Ah, engineering is not for me." Women don't say, uh, "Maths is not for me," or whatever. Uh, and there's some fantastic initiatives going on that I think will have an impact in the medium term. Uh, and in the short term, you know, I hope Code First is having a little bit of an impact too. Okay, talk to us about London tech scene. You know, we're obviously here in London. It's something we talk about where we are in comparison to the world right now. What's the biggest beef you have right now with the London tech scene, the biggest problem we're facing, the thing we need to overcome to get us to the next level or to the top level as a city? Well, I think, I think maybe the same answer to the last segment. I think we need a little bit more self-confidence, really. I'm, I'm, I, I don't see major, major barriers, at least at the stage that, that we work at. You know, like... Um, you know, if, if I wanted to be bullish, I'd say we have incredible talent, um, really, in, at the graduate level, but also, you know, elsewhere. And there's now definitely getting to the stage where if you look at the larger startups that are either exiting or preparing to exit, you know, they're starting to throw off, you know, genuinely world-class product managers, genuinely world-class senior engineers who are starting their own things. Um, I think, like, in terms of access to capital, I think it's a fantastic time to be fundraising in London, um, I think SEIS, the tax break scheme, has made a huge difference at the very kind of early seed level. Um, you know, there's a proliferation in a good sense of, of funds, micro funds, 
uh, led by genuinely experienced entrepreneurs, product people, people who've been around the block in this sector. Um, and, you know, it's very early days, but there's encouraging signs, you know, from uh, the London Stock Exchange, etc., that, you know, so the exit market is, is starting to be more hospitable. So um, I think partly we can stop looking so kind of forlornly westward and uh, complaining about how we can't do what's out there. And, and just remember that, you know, I think there's like massive returns to generational turnover in startups. You know, you want angels who have sold companies. You want, you know, senior engineers who have scaled companies. You want product people who have shipped to millions, hundreds of millions of people. And that comes with time and with generations. But I don't see any reason why this generation of London tech, you know, shouldn't produce valley style generations three or four generations down the line and of course generations i mean a short start start of generations not human generations (laughs) so it's just a confidence issue to a certain extent and time i mean like silicon valley has like many couple of decades head start right Right. three decades head start um uh and but i i also think that london has a lot of advantages you know in terms of i think we see increasingly that you know exciting startups tend to come from a fusion of fantastic technical talent and real domain expertise and actually London has some fantastic domains that are not tech uh, out of which you see uh, you know great startups coming I met earlier today uh, the guys who run uh, touch surgery which is um, two surgeons who you know great surgeons and and realized a massive opportunity in how do we teach surgeons uh, using tech and have built a fantastic company that way you know I think fintech is clearly massive in in London um, fashion music you know there's in terms of where is where are the domain experts who are going to really understand these problems I don't think London has anything to worry about that yeah well it's a proper urban scene here yeah. so you've got a bit of everything when it yeah. comes to six ten million people so you're yeah. going to get we're going to have someone in fashion on soon and yeah. those people wouldn't necessarily be hanging out necessarily in Silicon yeah. Valley so yeah I mean I think there's I again like I guess this is somewhat EF centric, but like I think there is a big difference in the mentality of um, kind of tech people. Maybe not kind of later in their careers, but one thing that really strikes us, having spent a little bit of time out in the states, I was at grad school there, and and you know kind of with work since. Um, I think people get into computer science for very different reasons in the US and the UK. Um, uh, one way of thinking about it is that you know. If you look at the difference between a Stanford engineer and a Cambridge engineer, it's almost that um, for a Cambridge engineer, you know, it's more of an intellectual pursuit. It's more of a, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Whereas almost, uh, and, you know, they, they're kind of classic engineers who then have to decide what to do with their lives. Whereas CS at Stanford has almost such a long heritage that you get kind of megalomaniacs drawn to CS because computer science is how you express your like desire to change the world. Mm. And I almost think that, you know, we can do that at EF. EF is almost like an institution to make megalomaniacs of computer scientists, whereas Stanford is an institution to, you know, kind of make computer scientists of megalomaniacs. And I think over time, you know, kind of from creating role models, if we can get a British Zuckerberg, then maybe you get more people applying for CS because they see it as a way to have an impact on the world rather than us afterwards saying, hey, wouldn't you like to change the world and actually lucky you you can use the skills you've already got good observations what what did i miss before i hit him with the question yeah i guess i I think um from like a psychological perspective i think you guys are building so much data and so i I think it'd be interesting to hear from your perspective maybe you know if you had to choose the top one two or three personality traits that you find of the successful teams or applicants of those teams 
Um, what would you what would you say those are? We're obsessed with this question. We okay. think this is fascinating. Um, uh, there's a great paper that a guy in Stanford, um, whose name escapes me, unfortunately, wrote on like what are the, what are the kind of big um, character traits that set aside successful entrepreneurs from other people. And um, the number one thing he identified was something he calls personal exceptionalism, um, which is basically the belief that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Most people have a one in a billion chance of starting a billion dollar company, but that's most people and I'm not most people. And actually, kind of, you know, that finds expression in lots of different ways. And we see that again and again and again in so the most personal pe- exceptionalism. So like, is another way of saying arrogant or confident? Uh, not, not arrogant, <laughs> fine line not arrogant but like, I think um, it's, it's saying that, sure, 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 those odds might apply to most people, right, but they but don't apply for me, to me. Um, now, Obviously, there's going to be a lot of those people who are wrong. Sure. Uh, and that's kind of like... Self-awareness. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, if you look at what were the odds against any of the people who've really made a dent in the universe or whatever through creating companies, they were right. Yeah. You know, like th- those odds didn't apply to them. Um, you know, uh, So they're dreamers? No. No, personal not personal exceptionalism. I'm still, I don't even know um, what that means still. <laughs> it means that you believe you are a personal exception to, okay. to the rules. Okay. Um, it means that you are saying... Psychopath. I think it's more that you, um, you, know, you can consider it a matter of like probability, right? It's like I have a one, you know, people in general have a one in a million chance of being successful um, at this, but that's partly because they're not me. I'm not saying that about myself. I'm right. saying this is right. what okay. this right. is what these guys are saying. That's right? the mentality. Um, I think that kind of personal confidence. I think, yeah, yeah because you give up a lot to try you, to start the something. The opportunity cost is huge sure. for these people. Sure. Um, and if you if you just break down the opportunity cost to you know a fixed number, yeah, uh, generally uh, just on a piece of paper it'll be you'll right. lose, right? So you yeah. have to think you're going to succeed. Exactly. So you know you. If you do a rational calculation right. of like, I could go make a hundred k a year at Goldman, or I could do this, and you basically try and work out how much this is worth by timesing an exit value by some probability, right. you have to have a kind of Pre- irrational N- N- of, Yeah, uh, yeah, you need to have a kind of irrational view of what yeah. that probability is to make right. it add up. Right. Um, but actually, that's you know irrational overconfidence. I don't know, um, but it uh, is is a huge thing, and cool. you know we do see that a lot. And, and I think the most important thing is. I'm being slightly facetious about people on the kind of like as they come in making that calculation, but it's more when you hit a setback. Do you say like, oh, maybe I'm not all I thought I was? Or do you say, oh man, I can't believe I've hit the setback. Um, you know, like must be doing it wrong because obviously I'm going to succeed. Because right. uh, if you don't think you're going to succeed, if you don't really believe you're going to succeed, how do you not read the countless setbacks that you encounter as evidence that you should give up? Right. Um, so it says rational people need not apply on your... I, I think, I, yeah, I mean, I... Broadly, I think that if you if you are like a real odds calculator and you're just going to run the numbers, it, it doesn't make sense for you. Right. It really okay. doesn't. And so that's quite a nice filter. Yeah, that's <laughs> and you've got a way of finding those people by asking questions. Uh, we 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 have a we have a test that we're experimenting with. It's like a. Uh, it's probably like funny, he's my, gonna sell it to the U.S. Army. Is it like so? Fine. One of my really good uh, good good friends from from grad school. He works for a big firm, Corn Ferry, so huge yeah, yeah. firm. And his background is in psychology, right. and so he he sort of works. He does a lot of things for him, but one of the cool things is he sort of pre-interviews a lot of CEOs and a lot of entrepreneurs because mm. oh, they do executive companies. hires. Yeah, 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 exactly yeah. right. And so you know the, the cost of hiring the wrong CEO is ex- is really yeah, expensive. Yeah. And so he, he, I talk to him all the time about you know successful personality traits, and uh, I, th- I think it's a fascinating, yeah. uh, fascinating topic. This this paper identifies a few others, which to be honest, we we've not seen as strongly, but it's interesting. So like one of them is like dichotomous thinking, 
So this guy argues that successful entrepreneurs tend to kind of lack nuance in how they evaluate ideas. Like it's either this is the best thing ever or it's a piece of shit. And like, like, and that kind of makes, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Is that you're like, well, I've got to do this idea because it's the greatest thing ever. And that kind of almost breeds the uh, irrational uh, optimism that makes you keep going when, you, uh, when you're not sure that you will. I think that's quite interesting as an idea. Um, Sounds like Steve Jobs would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think right. he's, had, so, he's said that in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we always ask everyone that's sitting there uh, a few questions at the end, so I'm going to hit you with them. Um, if you could give the young uh, 20-year-old Matt Clifford a phone call and give him a bit of advice, what would you tell him? Oh, that's a great question. Um, when did you start at McKinsey, out of curiosity? I uh, started at McKinsey in 2009. So you would have been... 23? Uh, I, I'd been to grad school, so I was oh, okay. 24. So you're older. So you're yeah. already long gone. So, so uh, what, the 20-year-old... What, um, well, I kind of like where I am. So I'd be, I'm really enjoying myself. So I'd be really loath to give myself any advice that would uh, uh, push me wildly off course. Um, I'm sure there's lots of ways I could have been richer. But um, uh, Would you have advised him not to go for the glory job at McKinsey? Because uh, that's kind of what you're telling these young grads. Well, I, what, I, I think if you changed it to a 15-year-old Matt Clifford, I'd have probably said, don't stop coding. Um, because I did, and that kind of meant that actually I would never get into EF. Um, hands up. Um, I kind of I, I went to MIT as a grad student. I did a lot of statistics and data stuff, and I think it gives me just enough tech credibility to kind of get by. But like I, I was one of those massive geeks who at 13 was like making stuff in Visual Basic, and I totally gave it up in, in, in favor of um, um, much more kind of cool things um, when I was 15. And that really meant that you know by the time I came around to actually uh, doing a degree and applying for jobs, I, I couldn't have done it yet. So I guess I, by the time I was like 21, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty uh, set. But I definitely, and I said this to any 15 year old now, it's like, wow, you've got like six years before you have to even seriously think about whether you might want a job. Like in six years, you can be pretty good, uh, pretty good at coding. And like when I see the opportunities available to the guys who are just extremely strong technically coming into EF, like they have opportunities that. I never would have had with my skill set. So keep coding. Keep coding. Keep coding. What uh, what course were you at MIT? Um, I did um, I did a whole bunch. Of, it's a complicated story. I was a I had a scholarship that allowed me to basically do what I wanted, which was very lucky. Um, so I did a bunch of stuff in maths, a bunch of stuff in statistics, things in economics, um, but mainly mainly doing applied statistics. Okay, course eighteen then maths. All that stuff. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, second part of that question is: What's the best advice you've ever received, business or personal? Um, well, um, I think, I think it varies uh, a lot depending on whether you, I mean, I think the best advice that I've received that I pass on to, um, our startups is just, you know, kind of focus relentlessly on doing one thing really, really, really well. Um, and for a startup, I think that's completely crucial. Um, the number of times our teams fail or slow down just because they, get distracted is enormous and it's one of those things that sounds incredibly obvious and yet it's so difficult to live versus you know to know like oh i know i'm meant to focus but you live focus um so that strikes me as you know kind of extremely important on the stop side on a personal side i think like write stuff down would be the best advice like, like lists uh, of things to do just or? just thoughts thoughts ideas um like the way i see it is like you know you you have a kind of finite lifetime and most of it is kind of 
lived experiences in your head. And if you don't like have any record of, of what you're thinking, you kind of lose a lot of that lived right. experience. Like dreams, they just go. Yeah, so I'm, I'm totally... How long before you download everything? <laughs> well, I mean, that, but that's quite... I mean, like, so I was about to say I'm a compulsive Evernote user. Like, I, right. so after every, um, every meeting I have, every book I read, not quite every article I read, but anything, like, significant, I, like, immediately try and write down, like, a summary uh, or synthesis in, in Evernote. But, like, Evernote's... Um, slogan i think is everyone's digital brain right so um i i'm sure they're thinking hard about yeah. exactly that yeah yeah but like write stuff down like it's amazing how often evernote's really cool because when you type a note now it tells you it kind of suggests other notes that you've written that are mm. interesting oh, wow. the number of times i'm writing a note about a meeting and it brings up a note about another meeting they had yeah. two years ago I gotta read. and it's like oh wow yeah like I need that thought right now, and it's so it's incredible. Huh. Um, See, that's biohacking, right there. See, I gave up on Evernote a while back. I tried okay. it and hated it, and just it didn't work for me. And so I, and so I actually old school. I have like a little pad that I keep in my pocket all the time, and I'm writing stuff down all the time. Um, but I'm gonna give Evernote. I think if you like, you have to like almost maybe this is just like a kind of personality flaw, but I have to like set myself really strict limits. So I said to myself, I'm only gonna make three bullet points after every meeting, and mm-hmm. so it really forces you to like condense it because my problem is i used to want to keep a diary obsessively because i just like as i said like recording things and problem is i'd start writing these diaries and it took me like an hour and i'd have written like right. a thousand words and it's like i just can't keep this up whereas if i tell myself yeah. you're only allowed three things i'm much more likely to do it and the the computer can analyze those three things much better than you right yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> thousand word diary yeah yeah, yeah. they say it's a best a good way <clears throat> To like crystallize your thoughts by yeah. writing things down, and they say some people say you actually writing it by hand is, is even better. Than I'm sure. That, I'm sure that probably is true. Yeah, if sure you have the time, but well, it like, improves retention so much. Yeah, just right. thinking about what you want to remember. So I remember like learning French as a kid. Right. I've always had to revise that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Matt, I love this story. I, I love this whole idea. You know, it's it's really it's really innovative in a in a in a scene where that word is used too much. This this really is. So yeah. thanks so much for coming on. How do people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you or apply for next year? Uh, well, we are entrepreneurfirst.org.uk or Google us. We come up. Um, I'm Matt entrepreneurfirst.org.uk and on Twitter I'm Matthew Clifford. Fantastic. Very cool. Um, Silicon Reel, if you're listening to us on iTunes, we are on YouTube. You can come watch us. Come check us out, uh, YouTube channel Silicon Reel. We're on Twitter. Uh, if you want to help us out, we love help. So send us an email at hello at siliconreel.com. Um, we've got some people that are really uh, helping us out with videos and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, if you also want to be a part as far as a, a sponsor on the show, come contact us. Our inventory is going quickly. Um, but uh, it's a great way to get in touch with the scene and people that are constantly looking at this place. Uh, from all over the world so uh there you go episode 35 it's a wrap yeah episode 35 fantastic going strong thanks for having me yeah yeah and guest guest suggestions please uh hit them up we're looking for for amazing you know stories uh great companies great people uh great investors all types of stuff so uh hit us up with ideas we get every get them every now and again and keep them coming because uh I'm, I'm there responding most of the time to Twitter and, and following up, so it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, you're all over that Twitter account. Yeah. Um, as we say on Silicon Reel, it's about the people. Thanks for your story, Matt. All the best. Thank you. I can't wait to talk to him in like three years. And yeah, Jesus see the success Christ. stories. Yeah, the amount of companies. So that's fantastic. Um, thanks so much for coming in, and yeah, all the best. Thanks a lot. Cheers, thanks. In the world of media, it's all about tone of voice, building audience and building that point of view that people want to keep coming back to your channel. Some of the top clips in terms of earning us money today were produced three years ago. 
When we look at vintages of content that we've made, we make more money on our 08 produced content this year than we have in any other year. Messi versus Ronaldo, when they're top players, it's going to be relevant for years rather than the moment in time. So if we said, here's Messi's reaction to such and such, that's only maybe a couple of hours worth of heat in terms of trending. But Messi versus Ronaldo, it's proved to be somewhat timeless.